The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Good morning, everyone. We're going to be looking this morning in Haggai chapter 2, finishing up our uh, study through this very short book in the Old Testament. And so we'll begin in a minute when all the kids are out and it's a little bit quieter. (laughs) We'll begin by reading uh, from Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Haggai 2, 20 through 23. And I titled this The End because it's the end of the book, but also, as we'll see, it's it's about the end. So um, let's read these four verses. Uh, Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Uh, We live in a time uh, uh, when it seems like, I don't know about you, but to me, it seems like the nations are just out of control, right? And... uh, especially the the powerful nations of the world are amassing more and more power, more and more weapons. uh, And it seems as if these these great powers are coming to a great standoff, a great face-off, right? Um, There's there's the the war between Russia and Ukraine. And if it just stayed between Russia and Ukraine, it would be one thing. But, of course, now there's the talk that Putin may launch nuclear missiles. And what will the rest of the world do if he does that? Right? Will the West stand off against Russia? Will it start a nuclear war? Right? That's the question. And how will that end? And of course, there's China uh, and Taiwan. And uh, there's a face-off there. And if China moves to take over Taiwan, as they keep threatening, uh, what is the U.S. going to do? Right? They promise they're not going to let that happen and stand idly by. So, again, the potential for this great face-off between these two superpowers um, and then, of course, there's North Korea uh, launching uh, nuclear missiles over Japan this last week. Um, uh, who, who's going to stand by and watch that just happen, right? Um, there's always this choosing of sides. And these superpowers, uh, you know, flex their muscles. And how, how's this going to end? And we can, you know, sit here in Thailand and think, well, uh, whatever they do, we're kind of we're kind of okay because we're not in the line of fire, right? Like if they go to war against each other and nuke each other, we're, we're not going to get caught in the crossfire. We're too far out of the, out of the path of danger. Uh, well, that may or may not be true. But even here in Southeast, Southeast Asia, uh, in these smaller, less powerful countries, we see rulers who are really out of control. Uh, we look to the west of Myanmar, where the uh, the junta has just taken over and, and turned the country upside down. And it seems like even in a small country like that, nobody can stop them or will stop them. And they just do whatever they want. Uh, 
right? And great injustice uh, happening there. Uh, I just got a prayer request from someone who uh, has connections and done ministry in Vietnam, and they were asking us to pray for a pastor there who had been arrested and uh, day after day was being interrogated uh, for being a Christian and being threatened with being uh, put in jail, right? Who stops these bullies, right? Who stops these powerful leaders in these nations from just doing whatever they want? Um, and it seems like there will, there will be uh, just no peace in the world. As, as all over the world, people are being persecuted and oppressed because of religion, because of, because of their women, uh, because they're the wrong nationality or ethnic group, right? And uh, who will stand up to these bullies? Who will stand up to these leaders and these powers? Uh, who will bring peace? And how will it all end? Well, the, the, the book of Haggai, uh, in this last section, speaks to some of this. Now, the book of Haggai, if you've been following with us from the beginning, is mostly a book about uh, encouraging the people of Israel to rebuild their temple. And, of course, their temple had been destroyed uh, almost 70 years earlier when the people of Israel, who were supposed to be God's people, they were supposed to be God's uh, servants and worship God alone, had turned away from the true and living God and were worshiping all kinds of idols. And God had promised that if they did that and they didn't repent and turn back to him, that he would hand them over to their enemies. And so that's exactly what happens. And they're handed over to the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys Jerusalem, he takes, uh, destroys most of, of Judea, uh, he destroys the temple, levels it to the ground, and he takes most of the residents captive as exiles back to Babylon, and they're there for 70 years. Um, but we see with Haggai, uh, God in his grace did not forget them, and he did not ignore them, and he brings them back, uh, a small remnant, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, and most importantly, to rebuild the temple. And this was important because the temple represented God's presence on earth. Uh, and it was a place where he said his, his very presence would dwell and where he would be worshipped. And God wants to be worshipped here in this earth by, uh, by the people he created. So it was important that they finish this, this project. And so Haggai comes along to encourage them in this work of rebuilding the temple. And that's what most of the book talks about. But at the end, it, it kind of shifts from the focus on the temple to really focusing on uh, the nation. And the question really is, okay, well, God's going to have his temple in Jerusalem. That's all great. But what's going to happen to Israel as a nation? And they are still very much subjects to the Persian Empire. And uh, the Persian Empire is massive, right? It is massive. It is a superpower at the time that dominated the world. And Israel was uh, this captive country with this remnant of a few thousand Israelites living in Jerusalem. And the question is, you know, what is Israel in comparison to this great superpower, the Persians, and to King Darius? Um, and, and is God done with Israel as a kingdom? Now, uh, the reason this question is important is that while the temple represented God's presence on earth, up till the destruction of, of Israel, the, the Israel really represented God's kingdom on earth. God's kingdom reign and rule on earth. And, and Israel was to be a place where God was really their king. And while there were kings like David and Solomon, uh, they were really uh, exercising authority under the reign and rule of God. And they were to be what's called the theocracy, meaning a kingdom where God was their king. And it represented God's authority, God's power, God's rule on earth. 
So what's going to happen to that now? Uh, does this mean that with the destruction of, of Israel and the uh, end of the Davidic line of kings, that God would no longer reign and rule on earth? Now, of course, as Christians, we know what God reigns and rules everywhere, right? Um, and whether or not David's on the throne or not, God's still in charge of the world, yes. But, but his active rule, his, his, his uh, recognized rule, really depended on, on, on Israel, right? So that's really the question. Is God's rule done uh, on earth? Uh, and so uh, Haggai, through the word of the Lord that comes to him, gives really uh, an answer. He addresses this question in these last four verses. What about God's rule on earth? Um, is God going to exercise rule over the Chinas and the United States of Americas and the Russias of the world, right? Or is God powerless before these superpowers, right? That's the question. Uh, and and what, is it, what does it mean for us as we live in this age, right? Uh, and really, um, Haggai is writing here about the end, right? So, um, I, I don't know if you're one of those people, but there are those people out there. I am not one of these people because I like to be surprised. But there are those people out there who, uh, when, they, when they get a book, the first thing they do is read the last page. Any of you that person, Right. You just, first thing before you read one word at the beginning, you go to the very end of the book and read the last page, because they want to know how the story ends before they waste all their time on the book, right? Because if it ends badly, it's like, I'm not wasting my time there, right? Are you one of those people? Well, um, it, uh, we get to see, here in Haggai chapter 2, the end, we get to see the, the last page of the story, right? We get to jump ahead and read uh, what happens at the end, and it's a picture, really, of the end of the story, not just the end of Haggai as a book, but the end of the story of history, right? And it says in these verses, it says, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day, the ninth month, which, by the way, it came earlier in the day, so this is the second uh, time he gets a word from God. But this time it's specifically to, uh, to Zerubbabel. And I have a hard time saying that, too many Bs. So I feel like I'm mumbling. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Right, Zerubbabel. Who was he? Well, he was the governor of this what's now just a province, a tiny little province as part of the Persian Empire. Uh, it includes Jerusalem and the region around called Judea. Right, and so he's the governor. It says he's Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, "I am about to shake the heavens and the earth." Okay, now when God shakes the heavens and the earth, that's, that's generally not a good thing, right? He's not rocking the earth to sleep. He's shaking it. It's violent. It's God intervening in history in a very powerful and direct way. And he says he's shaking the heavens and the earth, and, and he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of their brother. Um, this is the end of the story, right? God is going to come uh, on the last day at the end. He is going to shake the heavens and the earth, and he is going to overthrow uh, the nations, uh, or more specifically, the throne of nations, the throne of kingdoms. Uh, the short answer, how does it end? Well, the short answer is simply God wins. <laughs> God wins. God does, in the end, rule. Uh, in the end, he does not... Um, bow to any other power or rule or authority. In the end, he will set straight every 
country, every nation, every kingdom, and it will come under his absolute sovereign reign and rule. Right? So that's good, that's good news if you're on his side, right? It's bad news if you're not on his side. That, that's kind of the short answer and summary here. Um, but let's break it down just a little bit. Uh, this is actually the second time he talks about shaking the heavens and the earth. He said it earlier in, in the chapter in verse 6. And there he's talking about shaking the nations to shake out their wealth. And that he would shake the nations and their wealth would come into Jerusalem to fund the building of the temple. And that actually was, was accomplished through Darius and some of those who followed Darius and ultimately by the Romans who built this extraordinary temple under Herod the Great. Right? So that prophecy was fulfilled. But now the shift is, is, is to shake the nations, not to get their wealth, but to overthrow their power. Right? To destroy human rule and authority and the power of kingdoms and nations. And they use this kind of an interesting phrase. He says he overthrows the kingdoms of the nations. And that's kind of a strange phrase. We, we don't, it's like, well, aren't, aren't nations kingdoms? What does it mean, the kingdom, kingdoms of the nations? Well, in, in ancient times, they had a little bit different idea of what a kingdom was than maybe we do. Uh, we speak of the kingdom of Thailand. And by that, we really mean the geographical area of Thailand, the country, the nation of Thailand. But in ancient times, a kingdom was more about the rule of the king. It had to do with the effective power and reach and authority of the ruler. Right? So what he's really saying here is he's going to destroy the ruler's of the nations and their rule, their authority, their power, right? So if you're the president or the prime minister or the whatever leader of these countries, uh, you should be really interested in these verses, right? Because he's talking about you. Okay, any, any world rulers here this morning? I check. Um, right? Uh, they should take note because God is going to overthrow them. He's not going to destroy the nations, but he's going to destroy those who rule them. He's going to crush and conquer them, right? Uh, and, and God is the one that, that will do it by his own power and authority. He doesn't need help. He doesn't need extra weapons. <laughs> he's just going to do it. In fact, his strategy, it says, is he's going to do it by turning uh, them against each other so that they destroy each other by their own sword, by their own weapons, all right? So we live in an age where we could very easily envision how this would happen, right? Putin launches a nuclear missile into Ukraine. The United States launches some missiles at Russia. Russia launches some weapons back. China doesn't want to get left out, so they start launching. And pretty soon, we've just destroyed each other, right? We've wiped each other out with our own weapons, right? Uh, and I don't know that that's how it's going to happen. But, but it's some form of that, right? He says God's going to turn these nations against each other and they're going to destroy their own armies, their own weapons and their own power. And they're going to wipe each other out. Not only the rulers, but also their armies and all their toys, right? all their weapons, all their sources of power. And what gives rulers power is ultimately their military might and force. And um, you know, what's going to happen when they all push all the buttons and they've used up all their toys and there's none left? Then what? Right? Then what? We don't have no... You have no more weapons, no more armies left. You have no more power. It's over. It's over for you, right? And so the horses and their riders, the armies, shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. So short answer here, the, the, 
what, what he's saying here is that in the, this great day, the end day, the end of the story, is that God is going to come. He's going to overthrow rulers, authorities, governors, kings. He's going to overthrow their governments and their power, their rule. Uh, but the, the nations will remain, right? And he will rule over them all. Uh, and so what's significant here is that uh, God's rule in the future is not going to be uh, limited to just Israel. Right up to this point, his rule on earth had been in the kingdom of Israel. But he says the day is coming, that the end is coming when I'm going to extend my rule, not just through Israel, but through the, every nation of the world. There will be no country, no nation, no people, no language that are not under my sovereign rule as king over everything. Okay, and that's what happens at the end. Uh, so, so what does this have to do with, then with Israel and specifically with this Zerubbabel, the governor? Well, it says on verse 23, on that day, okay, so on the day when he shakes the heavens and earth, on the day when he uh, conquers and overthrows kingdoms and powers and rulers, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, uh, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, now, here, Zerubbabel is not identified as the governor of, Jude, of, of Judah. He is, he's identified as the son of Chieltiel. Also, kind of a mouth word. Say that word ten times, right? Uh, who is this Chieltiel? What does this have to do with anything? Well, he uh, was a descendant of uh, the last king to rule and reign in Jerusalem before the exile. A guy named Jehoiakim. Right, uh, and and he's uh, identifying Zerubbabel as one of the heirs to the throne of David. Right, that's what that title means. And what what God is saying here is that Zerubbabel and his descendants are at the center of what is to come when God overthrows the uh, the nations. Uh, God is not finished with Israel or with the line of David, actually. Uh, and and, and uh, God had promised to David way back when David was still living, many hundreds of years before Haggai, uh, God had promised David uh, that uh, his, one of his descendants would sit on his throne, that is the throne of David, and one of those descendants would reign forever. Right? And God has not forgotten that promise. Even though Israel has been sent into exile, and now they're a destroyed country, they're no longer a nation, God has not forgotten his promise to them. And he is going to restore uh, the line of David. He is going to restore one as the king. Uh, and it sounds at first like it's Zerubbabel. We'll see in a minute that it's, it's really through him, but not to him that this promise is made. And it says that Zerubbabel will be like a signet ring. Well, what, is it? what is a signet ring? Well, it's basically a ring that had on it the, the king's emblem or seal, right? Uh, and it was a little bit like a modern-day password for your Lazada or Shopee account, right? Uh, if, you have, uh, if you have somebody's password to their, their Amazon account or their Shopee account, right, you have authority to spend all of their money. It's awesome, right? If I gave you my account, you could go into my account, and you could buy anything you want because you have my password. It authorizes you. So when it says... Username and password. You put that in and boom, you're in. 
But then when you make a purchase and it's once that password again, you give that password, boom, you, you've authorized that purchase, right? You could buy a whole new house, right, on my account. So I'm not giving you my password, right? Not that I don't trust you, but no, I don't trust you, right? right? Um, well, that's kind of the way the signet ring worked. It was like his password. And when you had that seal, whatever stamp you put it on, authorized it as a, the official declaration of the king. Right? So every decree, every order, every law, if it was stamped with that signet ring, it was authorized as if it were the king. Right? And so it says that Zerubbabel will be like uh, the king's signet ring. Now, it doesn't mean he will be the king. He won't be God. Right? He's not going to have power to rule over everything. But he's going to be one who's going to rule as God's agent, as God's representative, who has the full power and authority of God over all the nations. Right? Uh, that's what it means. That's what this is about, about Zerubbabel being uh, God's signet ring. Um, so, so why exactly does uh, Haggai give this word to Zerubbabel in, in these words? Why does he call him a signet ring? That seems like kind of a strange expression. Why doesn't he just say, well, Zerubbabel, you're going to reign as God's agent on earth? Well, for one, it's poetic and it paints a nice picture, but, but it's more than that. Uh, we find in Jeremiah chapter 22 that Jeremiah also gave a prophecy about one of Israel's kings related to a signet ring, right? And this is a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22. And it's God speaking here through Jeremiah. And he says, uh, as I live, declares the Lord, uh, though Coniah, and uh, Coniah is another name for the name Jeconiah. Remember that, Jeconiah, uh, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Uh, he says, as I live, uh, even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Okay, that's, not a, that's not actually a compliment, right? This is, um, this is not good. He said, and, and, and Jehoiakim is the last king of Israel, right? He's the last king in Jerusalem. And his heir to the throne was Jeconiah. And he says to him, look, if you were, if you were like a signet ring on my finger, I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So what, God, what Jeremiah is saying here to, to Jehoiakim is, look, your son, Jeconiah, he's the end, right? He is going to be captured as king, and he is going to be drug off as an exile to, to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And God is going to rip off that authority, that signet ring, and cast it away. Right? But there's more to the prophecy. Down in verse 30, Jeremiah continues, and he says this about this Jeconiah. He says, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Okay, so not only uh, is Jeconiah going to be held off, uh, drug off into captivity, uh, but on top of that, it, it marks the end of that line, and there will be no more descendants of his. The, the heir to the throne will not rule. And not only that, but he will be childless. He will be childless, it says. Uh, so who was the son 
and heir of Jeconiah. Would you like to know? Well, if you look in First Chronicles chapter 3, it tells us. And in First Chronicles, it has a list of all the kings. Who, 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 who the kings were and who their sons were. And guess who it lists as the son of Jeconiah? None other than Shealtiel. Does that name sound familiar? Well, who's Shealtiel? Well, it says, it says in, in Haggai that Shealtiel uh, is the, the father of Zerubbabel. But it says, you know, the prophecy of Jeremiah says that Shealtiel will be childless. Well, if you look over in First um, Chronicles, uh, he actually is childless. Uh, he is listed in Chronicles as one who went into exile and had no children. There's no son's name to Shealtiel. So then how is it that uh, Zerubbabel is called his son? Well, Zerubbabel, it says in First Chronicles, is actually the son of Shealtiel's brother, Padiah. Right, and the way it worked in those days, and it still does in modern times, if, uh, if a king has no heir, if an heir to the throne has no child, then it passes to the, the, next, uh, the next in line. Right? And so Zerubbabel was actually the next in line. And so he's counted as Shealtiel's son, kind of through adoption. Right? Um, so what we see is two cool things happen here. One, the prophecy of Jeremiah is fulfilled perfectly. Because the line ends with Jeconiah. And, and uh, he is the last king drug up into exile. And God uh, stops the line there. None of his direct descendants become king again. But God's promise here in, in Haggai to Zerubbabel is also true. Because Zerubbabel was a rightful heir to the throne of David. He was a descendant of, of King David. And the line restarts with him. It restarts with him. And so what this prophecy is largely about is, is, is God telling Zerubbabel, look, I'm not done with the line of David. Uh, even though it ended in, in exile, I am restarting it, jump-starting it new with you. Right? And you're going to be my signet ring. And on that day when I shake the nations, you're going to be the one who I will set up as my authority to rule the world. Of course, if you know anything about history, Zerubbabel lived 2,500 years ago. And if you know anything about history, he did not rule the world. Right? Uh, he didn't even rule Persia, right, or, or the Medes or the Greeks or the Romans, right? There's been a lot of rulers, and, and Zerubbabel was not one of them. He did not become ruler over every king and nation. And that's because God has, had not yet shaken the heavens and the earth, right? And really the promise here is, is to Zerubbabel as a representative. Right? And this happened often. Uh, we see in the Psalms where uh, it says that, that David will one day reign and rule. It doesn't mean David literally, but through, his, through David, through his descendants, God would rule. And the same is true here. He's saying that this prophecy will be fulfilled and, and Zerubbabel is representative of, of his descendants. And one day, one of his descendants would be the one... On that day when God shakes the heavens and the earth, who will rule and reign in power, right? Uh, so the, the real question, that kind of answers the question, how does it end? Well, the world, the story of history ends when God overthrows every kingdom and nation. And God rules through this descendant of Zerubbabel, who will be king over all the nations. Uh, so the next real question then that remains is, is not how will it end? But when? 
right? And that's really the more important question. Will it end in our lifetime, right? Will it end soon, right? When will it end? Well, there's really two parts to that, the answer to that question. And that is because the, uh, the end actually unfolds in two distinct phases or periods, right? So the first part is what I would call the beginning of the end, right? There's going to be the beginning of the end, and then there's going to be the end of the end, right? So what is the beginning of the end? When, when does the end start? Well, uh, we know that this great king, uh, the descendant of Zerubbabel, has actually already arrived, Right? The one that's prophesied about here has already come. And he has come to start, to begin the end. Right? And of course that person is Jesus. Right? Jesus the Messiah. And the word Messiah simply means the anointed one of the line of David. The king. Right? That's what the word Messiah meant to the Jews. It was the one who would come to reign and rule uh, on the throne of David. Of course, for the Jews, they didn't really understand the scope of, of Haggai. They, they kind of overlooked some of these prophecies like this one in Haggai. And they were picturing this king ruling over their tiny little nation. Uh, they missed the point that this ruler would actually rule over the whole world. right? But that's the significance and weight of the Messiah. He's the uh, promised anointed ruler uh, who would usher in this final kingdom, this final rule of God over all the earth. And what's interesting is in the Gospels, both Matthew and Luke record a genealogy of Jesus, right? And the main, one of the main purposes of both of those genealogies is to show that Jesus was a, a legitimate heir to the throne of David. And it traces back through Jesus' ancestors uh, to, to David. And, and both of those genealogies do that. Now, if you're a student of the Gospels, you know that they don't do it by the same path, right? And they both have a very different list of names going back from uh, Mary's husband, Joseph, back all the way through to Solomon and then to David. Uh, and, and there's after Solomon, there's actually no names that match. Okay, So you go from Solomon and there's lots and lots of kings, lots and lots of people. And then there's Joseph. And in both of those lists, there's only two names of all the names that match. And you know what those two names are? Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. Right? So however and whatever that means, we don't, I don't know what I'm going to have time to talk about now. But what we do know is this. Uh, Jesus was a descendant of David, but just as importantly, he was a descendant of Zerubbabel. Right? He was the one fulfilling this prophecy to be the signet ring uh, who would rule the world. Um, and, and Jesus did come proclaiming the, uh, the gospel of the kingdom. Right? He came bringing a kingdom, bringing rule with him. Matthew 9, chapter 9, verse 35 says this, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. Remember that ancient idea of a kingdom is not a territory, right? He's not preaching, uh, reestablishing Judah as God's territory. Uh, in the ancient view, a kingdom had to do with the rule of the king. And so it means that, that he comes simply sharing the good news of his reign and rule over the earth. Right? Jesus came to rule. He came as king. 
He came to bring His reign and rule and power over all the earth. And that's the gospel of the kingdom. That's the message that He proclaimed. And He did come to break the power uh, and dominion of kingdoms and nations. Now, if you know anything about Jesus' life, uh, you might find that strange. You might think, well, Jesus actually kind of refused that kind of power. And in fact, if you remember one time they tried to make him king and Jesus uh, rejected, he refused to let them do that. Like, so how can, you, how can I say that Jesus came to rule and reign over the nations when he wouldn't even be king of, of, of Israel, right? Well, uh, remember, this is phase one. And his reign and his rule comes in two distinct phases. In phase one, uh, he did not triumph over every power and authority by the sword. Right? He brought his rule and reign, but he did not bring it with power, with weapons, with might, with armies. Right? He came into Jerusalem as a king riding not on a mighty horse, but on a little donkey. Right? And the donkey was not a symbol of power, of military force and might. Right? If you want to impress somebody, you know, you ride into town on a Harley, right? Not on a little Honda Dream, right? Jesus came into Jerusalem on a Honda Dream, right? Uh, it's, not, it's not a power statement. He did not conquer uh, empires and kings with military might and power. Um, or with swords or weapons or nuclear missiles, right? How did he conquer well, he conquered by the power of the cross. That's the, the, the incredible thing about who Jesus is. Right? He came the first time to conquer, not with swords, but through the power of the cross. Well, how in the world did he do that? Well, power and dominion are a problem only when they are exercised apart from God and, and in defiance of him. So the rulers of the world, their power and their authority is not a problem, except that they do it in defiance of God. And they do it in defiance of God because they are sinful people. Because they have wicked, rebellious hearts that reject God as king and refuse to bow to him and refuse to acknowledge him as the rightful king of the universe. And that's true of kings and rulers, but it's true of every one of us who want to rule and reign over our own life, who reject and defy God's authority and rule over us, right? We want to be our own boss. We don't want God telling us what to do. And that's because our sins, are, our, our, our lives are sinful. We are rebellious by nature against God. And you see, if God was going to conquer anything, first he had to deal with our rebellious, sinful human nature, our hearts, and the way he dealt with that was uh, uh, and to, to break the power of sin. He did it by sending his son to die on the cross, right? To forgive sin and to break its power over us. Right? And really, uh, we see this in the New Testament, but this was even prophesied in the Old Testament. That Jesus would come as a conquering servant. As one who would overcome the powers of the world through the cross. And we see this pictured most dramatically and powerfully in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Uh, if I had time, I'd love to go through both of those chapters. We don't have time. But let me just highlight those two chapters briefly. Just read a couple of verses out of each chapter. Uh, it begins in verse 2 of chapter 52 of Isaiah. He says, Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. 
Because you get the picture, he's talking to Jerusalem, who's been in the dust, right? They've been seated in the dust in, 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 in oppression, right? He says, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Right? So here, Jerusalem and Zion, Israel, are pictured as slaves in captivity and oppression, right? He says, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and they became slaves in Egypt. And then the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. So later the Assyrians came before the Babylonians and captured the northern kingdom. That's what he's talking about there. So he's speaking here of how Israel, and then later, of course, Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians, how they've been a people oppressed and made slaves and prisoners. Their necks have been bound with an iron collar and chains. Right? But there's good news. Verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And what is the good news? Uh, well, it's the news of, of peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This is good news, right? They've been prisoners. They've been in bondage. They've been in chains. But the Lord is going to come back, and he is going to loosen their chains and set them free. That is good news. Sing for joy, he says. The, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. What does that mean when you bear your arm? Well, if I were to roll up my sleeves and bear my arm, it'd mean, it'd mean, wow, that guy's got skinny arms, right? But imagine I'm some big body, you know, builder, muscle guy. I bear my arm. I'm saying, watch out, watch out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you have it, right? That's what it means. It means I'm coming with strength and power, right? When God bears His holy arm before all the nations, watch out. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is sounding pretty good. This is sounding pretty triumphant, right? This is God going to beat up some people. He's going to conquer those nations. He's going to show them their place, right? Uh, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So this, this uh, rescuer in, in Isaiah is called uh, a servant, He's going to come. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. Let's see this. Okay, let's see God just you know, kick these nations, right? But then notice what happens as it shifts over into, uh, into chapter 53. The end of uh, verse 50, chapter 52 says, As many were astonished at you, that is this exalted one, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of men. Wait, what's happened here? This high and lifted up one, he, he is marred. Verse 3 of chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Well, what happened to this strong arm? What happened to this great Savior? Surely, 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, God's triumph was not in military conquest. His triumph was in sending his son to be pierced for our transgressions. Right? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, right? that was Jesus, that was God's victory. Right? He overcame our sin, our rebellious hearts. He overcame Satan and our flesh and our sin, not with a sword, but on the cross. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that is Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's the end, phase one. Jesus came bringing his rule, and he came bringing it by overcoming the power of sin over our life. Not only by forgiving sin, but by breaking its rule and power over us. And you see, in a very real sense, the kingdom rule of God has come with Christ. Um, And it is having great effect in the world even today. As he brings deliverance from the power and rule of sin and Satan over our lives and over the world. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are trusting him not only to take away your sin, but you are declaring him as king over your life. Right? He comes not only as a Savior, but He comes as King who wants to rule and reign over us. Uh, it is our prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we're praying for His rule, His authority, His power over our life and over all of the earth. Uh, when we live according to His rule and His law, when we are obedient to Him, He is He is truly our king, and his kingdom is coming to our life and through us to the world. So the world is being changed. The world is step by step coming more and more under the influence and power of Christ's rule as his church, as his followers grow and spread throughout the world. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, uh, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, have been given to me. In other words, I am that signet ring, right? I have been given all authority, all the authority of God to rule over heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? Teaching them to observe, to keep my rules, right? to allow me to rule and govern over their life. Um, that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be a follower of Christ who allows Jesus to have rule and reign over our life. To no longer live for our own agenda and plan, but to live for his and his purpose. Uh, to be part of his kingdom. Right? So Colossians 1.13 says this, He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the, the rule of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus. Right? We are now in his kingdom. And so in a very real sense, Jesus has already started the end, right? He's already brought his kingdom rule to this earth. And if we follow him and name his, him as Lord, uh, we are proving his, his reign and rule as, as we follow and obey him. But, but this is only the beginning of the end, and there is a, an end to the end, right? There is the final end as well. And, and the Bible is very clear that this is just the warm-up, phase one. And then comes phase two, and phase two is what's described mostly in, in, in Haggai, right? On that day, God will come and he will shake the heavens and the earth. And in a day, in a moment, and in an instant, Jesus will return, and he will not return on a donkey this time. It says in Revelation, he will come riding a great white horse, and there will be a sword strapped to his side. Uh, he won't use the sword, by the way. It says that he destroys the nations with the word of his mouth. And he will conquer every king and ruler and nation. Right? You don't need to worry about the world's rulers who are out of control. They may be out of control in our perspective, but they are in control in God's plan. And at the right time and the right day, Jesus will return. And he will uh, absolutely gain dominion over all of the earth. As I said before, that's good news if you're on his side. <laughs> it is bad news if you are not. Right? Uh, you see, in the end, when there's a battle, it only matters uh, which side you're on. You want to be on the winning side. Right? Jesus wins. Uh, you want to be on his side. Right? Because he will reign and rule. And his reign will be final and complete, uncontested and unchallenged for the rest of eternity. Right? So Hebrews 12 puts it this way. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, that is the people in older times, did not escape when they refused him, him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? That is Jesus. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That, by the way, is a quote from Haggai. Right? Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens. This phrase, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. The created order. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship 
with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Are you ready for that day? We get to read the last page of the story. We get to jump to the end of the book and we know how it ends. Right? So, so you were warned. We know. Right? And God does that out of His grace to give us the opportunity right, to turn to Him and to say, Lord Jesus, I want You to be King over my life as the One who has conquered sin and death through the cross. Please come and conquer and rule over my life. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.